Good morning. Our scripture this morning that we are going to consider is from 2 Corinthians. Um, If you have been been paying attention in our lectionary, we have been reading 2 Corinthians for a while, um, but we are now near the end of the book, and so I thought that maybe we would think more about it. Now, you need to know before I read this text that the beginning part is really going to confuse you. But you need to consider that it meant something to the people who heard it. Okay, so I'm going to try to give you an idea, at least what commentators talk about, which is that while Paul has not been with the church in Corinth, there have been other Pauls, other apostles, other teachers, and they have come to the church and they are preaching something that Paul is not that crazy about. And so he's trying to argue with these people. But in order to do that, he has to actually get their attention And these other teachers and apostles have been bragging about visions that they have of God and revelations. And so Paul is going to boast to them, which is ironic because the entirety of 1 Corinthians says, do not boast. But Paul is going to boast and Paul is going to essentially boast about uh, revelations uh, that Paul has experienced from God. And that's something that mattered to the church in Corinth. It doesn't probably matter as much to you, but it would be like if I boasted in something that got me authority right now, and then years later people read it, and they'd be like, what is she talking about? So you just have to understand, it mattered to the church in Corinth, and that's why he's doing that. Um, And there is lots of irony about it. And so here we go. Yet again, Do not boast, you hear, all in 1 Corinthians. And then here he says, it is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ. A lot of people think he's referring to himself, so he's trying to act like this is someone else. But I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat, which is ironic because these other teachers have basically bragged about what God said to them in the visions. So Paul's not going to tell them. But on behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own half, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Which is to say, look, I'm not going to boast. If I did, it would mean a lot to you, but I'm not going to. Now gets to the part where hopefully this connects with you. And I encourage you, like um, what God says to Ezekiel, to chew on this, to eat this scroll to chew on it, think about it. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me and to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with my weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So alongside the rest of the world, at least a lot of people outside of the United States, our family has been watching a lot of soccer lately as the World Cup is on. And I have to confess I'm not that into sports, but I do love that our youngest yells goal every time he sees soccer on TV. And to have a goal in soccer is a big deal. It doesn't happen that often. And it is so joyous. I don't know if you have been watching it, but to watch the team run to each other and pile on top of each other and the entire stadium erupts, at least of the fans that got the goal. And the thing is, because these don't happen that often, they will just put all of the highlights together. There'll be a highlight reel that you watch. And in our day and age, it will live on YouTube forever. Of course, also on YouTube are all the times that people missed the goal. And I can only imagine what it's actually like to have your highlight reel for everyone to watch and your failure reel for everyone to watch forever. And I imagine that someone who might have some familiarity with this experience is Paul. Now, you may say that was a big leap from the World Cup to the Apostle Paul But I say that because Paul's best and worst moments are recorded in Scripture. And they have been replayed through the centuries. To make it even more dramatic, Paul's goals and Paul's misses have been reproduced countless times. His words have led some to reach the great heights of their humanity. And his words have led some to completely misinterpret things and hurt people. And it's for this reason that some of you may be a little hesitant right now that I begin a sermon at this pulpit talking about Paul. Because Paul is someone that progressive Christians tend to love to hate. So your inner theological referee may have already stepped out to pause the sermon in your head. Thank you, Lula Mae. Can you do it louder? (laughs) Yellow card. Foul on the play. Sermon on Paul. I understand the reaction because many people have been wounded by Paul's writings. But actually, if we really just say it differently, we should say many people have been wounded by the way that preachers and teachers and Christians have used Paul's writings to authorize injustice and reduce the gospel. And if you can't go with me in a sermon on Paul, then I understand For those of you who do feel safe enough to consider Paul's word here, then I invite you to muster up all the courage and curiosity you can about this text and about Jesus and about yourself and wonder if there actually might be something helpful for us, even from Paul, the earthen clay vessel that he is. So in this first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, do not boast, never boast. And then here he is boasting. But Paul is not just boasting to make himself look really good. It's not actually about lifting himself up. He's actually just trying to earn back the attention of the people. He lost the authority with the people, and he's trying to get it back. And while we can give Paul a hard time about the many ways he contradicts himself, we cannot deny that actually confidence in ourselves is ultimately necessary. It is necessary to boast in something, 
If the World Cup players had never thought that they could play soccer and they could play it really well, they would never have been on the field. If you want a job, you create a resume, and it says something on there, something that you are proud of. Our family speaks in jest about what we call a wall of hubris. Hubris is a term that exaggerates boasting. It's sort of excessive self-confidence and pride. But we like that term. And so if you come into my office over there, you might see my wall of hubris. And on my wall of hubris includes a few degrees and maybe pictures of my family and maybe some art from my time in youth ministry. So my question is, what does your wall of hubris look like? What's on your highlight reel? Now, if you're too proud to admit that you might have a highlight reel, it may be that actually you just don't want to admit what you're most proud about. Or worse, your pride is unexamined and unknown to yourself, which is actually then a weapon to other people. On your wall of hubris, it might be degrees or training certificates Or maybe it's smiling pictures of friends or your children or a spouse or adventures you've been on or concerts or gadgets or devices or books or china from your grandmother or a sobriety coin that you have or a car parked on the street. Your wall of hubris may be the number of times you have stood with the marginalized or the number of Brene Brown books you've read and you are very keen on vulnerability, or perhaps it's a digital wall of hubris with likes and loves and retweets. I name all of these boasts not to shame any of us, but just to humanize us. We all boast in something, and we see Paul here boasting in something that mattered to him. But Paul knows that even as he is boasting to the people, Even when he is his best as an apostle, he still cannot do all he needs to for the church in Corinth. He cannot write enough about his visions and his revelations to save the church from its own weaknesses. You see, the degrees and the pictures that hang on my wall of hubris are always impeded by me, the person who sits at the desk in front of the wall of hubris. You see, it's my own weaknesses that drain all the power from my boasting. Paul calls this a thorn in his side, that which is keeping him from just being too joyful in all that he could be joyful in. So my question, my second question is, what does your thorn look like? We have to know our strengths and we have to know our weaknesses. What impedes you? What is something that holds you back from this life that you feel like you were born to live? Now, we don't know what Paul's thorn is, and lots of people spend time speculating. They, they wonder if he had a physical impediment, whether it was epilepsy or depression or chronic illness. I wonder if it was a challenge in a relationship or the environment or the fact that he knew that people were going to do terrible things with what he wrote. And those with the Brene Brown books on their shelves will know that actually this is an important question, but a really painful one. Our church, some of you are into the Enneagram, which is a popular personality type, but what you need to know about the Enneagram is it just reveals your greatest weakness. So if you reveal what number you are between one and nine, it's telling people what your greatest challenge is. 
So if you were to say your number, you would then be letting them know that you struggle with um, anger or pride or deceit or envy or greed or fear or gluttony or lust or sloth. Now, embracing our weaknesses, it's a very powerful step. And I could end this sermon, and we could think about what are the ways that we are weak, and we could grow from that. But actually, that's not really what Paul is fully talking about. And I love all of this talk, but ultimately, Paul does not want us to be the soccer players who are injured, who lay around on the ground trying to make a big, big show of their pain so that they can get a free kick on the other team's goal. Paul has more to say than just be comfortable with your weakness. Paul leads us to ask the third more important question, perhaps. Considering your strengths, considering your weaknesses, who is this God to which you look for salvation? Who is your Lord? Who is your Savior? For those of you who held up the first yellow card when I began preaching about Paul, you most definitely are holding up a second yellow card right now. And the theological referee in your mind is back and has stopped the play. Foul on the play. Fundamentalist terms employed. For some of you, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior refers to just an innocuous religious figure who asks for superficial belief in order to bestow a childish um, sense of security. Or, Jesus as Lord and Savior refers to sort of a boyfriend type who lavishes love upon you, who tells you everything's going to be okay, who carries your books through the hallways of life, and agrees that this mortal life really isn't as good as it will be one day when you grow up and get to the eternal And so for you, referring to Jesus as Lord and Savior isn't offensive. It just feels like something you outgrew. It's outdated. To use it now would be like you picking up a rotary phone. I mean, I guess it still works, but do people still do that? Others of you might be aware of the significant baggage of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior regarding patriarchy and slavery, and oppression, that, these, that, that loads down these terms to the point where actually they seem too warped by malicious theology to use them at all. And for some of you, your inner referee is threatening not just ejection of the preacher, but the immediate leaving of the sanctuary and abandoning of the game. <laughs> Foul on the play. Flashback to Jesus as an authoritarian gatekeeper who demands ritualistic sacrifice of who you are and what you think and who you love. Now, you may not have reacted this strongly to those terms, but you need to know that there are people in these pews who have experienced theological trauma that still impacts them in this sanctuary as certain religious language triggers their memories of being personally shamed and condemned and banished by God and by Jesus and by the church. And for this reason, it's worth pausing 
and slowing down, to take seriously the penalties that are named. Many people have experienced malicious theology and perpetrating pulpits who have used the phrase, Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, to be a boundary wall, a shield, and a weapon. And for that reason, as Christians, we have to be really careful in how we read Scripture and what we preach and in what we say. And Highland, you are so good at this. When I visit your Bible studies, I see how much you are giving space and room for people to think through violent theology that they have encountered or previous beliefs that just don't seem to work anymore. Safe spaces help survivors and witnesses recover their autonomy and their agency and their courage. And in that spirit, I invite us to consider examination on the play before Jesus, the one whom these flawed terms refer to, is ejected along with the terms. For without Jesus as Lord, meaning Jesus as one to whom we give our lives, to whom we give our direction, or look for direction, from whom we receive our purpose and our agenda and identity, we will never truly be able to love anyone. For we will be our own masters and lords. Without Jesus as Savior, meaning Jesus as one who is rescuing us from the perils of our weaknesses and resurrecting us from the consequences of our humanities, well, we convince ourselves that there's really not much danger. Or we actually just have no hope and we live in despair. If Lord is too patriarchal of a term, or if Savior is too nostalgic or nauseating, I understand. Throw a penalty on the terms, but let us not assume that Jesus is exactly who malicious theology has made him to be. I want us to stand our ground and deny fundamentalists the ability to own Jesus. Just like we will not let fundamentalists own the Baptist faith, it's still all of ours. While Paul does not dispense grace equally, Paul's intent that Paul tries to do is to share God's grace made manifest in Jesus Christ. Paul says to the church in Corinth, essentially, eat this scroll, meaning chew on this, hear me. Jesus did not come in the, into the world to condemn the world. Jesus came to offer grace, and grace gives love to all people without earning it. So in the same way, let us hear good news. Your highlight reel no longer has the pressure to save you. Now it just reveals the beauty of our human life. And the thorn in your side, in our side, is no longer purely a source of sorrow. Now it reveals our dependency upon this grace-filled Savior and our need to depend on one another. Today, I stand before you here to do some boasting. But the thing is, is it's not what the world would say I could boast in. Yes, my children are really cute. And I have some degrees hanging on my wall, 
and I look younger than I am. But I want you to know that those things are not that amazing about me. Because at the end of the day, what I will boast in the most, what I am most proud of, is the Savior who is redeeming my weaknesses and making my strengths not that great, but able to be used for something. And therefore, I am content in my weakness. My weaknesses limit me, and they hold me back from fully realizing all that I could be, But these weaknesses keep me close to Jesus, the one who's saving me from any hubris I can accumulate and any weakness that does grow within. I am content today for the power of Christ somehow dwells in me. Jesus says to us, boast in me. And we can reply, for your sake, we are content For whenever we are weak, then we're strong. And with that, my youngest would yell, goal. (laughs) And all teams could run around the field, rejoicing as redeemed people, still riddled with weaknesses, but boasting in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be so for us today. Amen.